welcome to episode three of Hypo Hoax. My name's Michelle and I am co-chair and trustee of the Children's Hyperinsulinism Charity. And my name's Steph and I'm the Scottish rep for the Children's Hyperinsulinism Charity. Okay, today we are discussing um, hyperinsulinism drug therapies and what has or hasn't worked for our children. We will also be talking about what happens when you've exhausted all options and um, we'll also be touching on clinical trials too. Um, we are delighted to welcome two HI mums to share their experiences and to also talk about um, clinical trials. So please welcome um, fellow US HI mum, Dave Ling. Hi, Dave. <laughs> I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're very um, welcome. I'm glad you can join us. And um, also, uh, we welcome Leanne, a fellow HI mum. Hi. <laughs> okay, Dave Lynn, do you want to introduce yourself? Oh, uh, my pleasure. Um, my name is Dave Lynn Hood. First and foremost, I am the mom to a now 20 year old son with HI. We're diagnosed at birth, uh, very shortly after birth. Uh, he had diffuse form and uh, had a pancreatectomy when he was two weeks old uh, and was on octreotide until uh, it was almost uh, almost 10. Uh, we had a, a G button and, and kind of the whole bit. So I've seen a lot of, of the HI side of things. Uh, I turned all of that knowledge and interest into working with the uh, International Advocacy Organization, CHI, for many years. And then earlier this year, professionally moved into a role as the Director of Scientific and Patient Affairs uh, with the company Resolute, which is currently developing a drug for hyperinsulinism. And that's wow. really exciting. And we're going to be talking about that um, very briefly in a little while, if that's all right, Dave. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And Leanne, welcome to Hyperhugs. Thank you. <laughs> So tell us a little bit about yourself. So we, um, our child was diagnosed from birth because it was picked up due to her weight because she was born at £10.6. Wow. So we thought that it was something transient. In fact, on my Facebook memories today, it said that her pancreas had just worked a little bit, no, her percent had worked a bit too hard. She'll be fine. She'll be out of NICU in no time. And now she's nearly nine and we've exhausted every single option. And only recently we've talked about the potential of removing her pancreas and we thought in fact she's actually nine now she turned nine at the weekend we thought by now we'd have seen better days but we still live on the rockier side of the hi path but she's just a superstar she is yeah it's really strange isn't it because you start on this journey and i think the first drug that is the go-to is diazoxide yeah and we were very lucky my child was diazoxide responsive however it's taken us nine years to get to the point where she has been able to come off of diazoxide and that's probably due to other issues that have gone on with her medically and developmentally as well so I count myself very lucky that we've just had diazoxide but obviously there's so many other families that diazoxide does not work for their child 
And obviously we've got three parents here. So who would like to kick off their experience at first? Oh, I Go on, Leanne. Yeah. <laughs> we tried Dyer's Oxide twice. We, we tried it in the local. We then tried Dyer's Oxide again. We then tried octreotide, but octreotide has always been a fine line. She can't have too much. She can't have too little. There's always been a fine line. But even that dose that she does need, it doesn't do a great deal. It just gives her enough to have a fast time of one and a half to two hours, which isn't fantastic, but that's all she's ever known. We tried sirolimus. Sirolimus was definitely not great for her. We then tried lamreotide, but because she has the issue of the octreotide where she does a fine balance, lamreotide was awful for her. And the only one we didn't try is, I think it's called the dasiglucagon, just because of issues with previous medications. So we're still now, for the last, since March, we've been upping and down in the octreotide to try and find a fine balance because our HI nurse did say to us that you know at the time she's nearly nine this isn't a great quality of life we should be potentially looking at other things here but we've been of the opinion that we just try to battle it out and all the while she's got that pancreas in there and if there is potential hope on the horizon then we will battle it out for as long as we can and it's hard work sometimes but for us we're lucky enough that I can be a, a stay-at-home parent I give Amelia that time and I know that for some people that's just not possible or mentally it's just not possible and they need to get themselves back to work but because I have the time to be able to do that with her it's that's been okay for us it's there's been times where it's been extremely tricky in March she had an emergency admission and we didn't think we'd ever need one of those again because of blood sugars because she couldn't even fast for half an hour but for us now we just need something else to just give her that little bit of a little bit more freedom so she can just go for a walk or without dropping her blood sugars or get for a pee lesson without dropping her blood sugars. Mm -hmm. But at least we can say we have tried everything. We're not just, you know, very hesitant. We have given absolutely everything that we can give a go a go. Mm -hmm. And she's very right on a continuous feed. But she's still got a pancreas in there. So we are thankful that she's still got that. Yeah. And obviously we remove it because... As the team say, there's no guarantee what her condition would look like after removing it. So, has your child ever been on two medications at the same time? Yes, yeah, sirolimus and octreotide, and then octreotide and lamreotide. Right. Okay. And th that didn't work either. No, sirolimus obviously has its side effects of the immune system, and that really knocked her immune system. So that had to be stopped immediately. And then that's when we discovered that there is a very fine balance of octreotide for our child. And the more octreotide she has, the more hypo she has, because her blood sugars go up to 14, 15. And then you know that you're going to see a drop. But no matter what you do, no matter how much glucose you give, you don't stop the hypo. So that was the problem we were having. And her... Her food diary, we should say, is more and more restricted because she's obviously very sensitive to glucose anyway, but she needs the glucose. So, Is she actually um, able to eat or has she um, got a peg in or a Mickey button? She, she does have a peg um, yeah. for her own feed, but she can eat. Oh, that's, that's good. She can eat. 
my son, he was on two medications. He was on diazoxide when he was first born. He was diazoxide responsive. But then we started having a lot of hospital admissions because of hypos and everything. And then we got approached by um, the consultant to start the Daziglucagon trial. And luckily, we've been very fortunate that that's actually worked for him. And um, it's only been increased once, I think, in the past. And thankfully, touch wood, (laughs) he's he's okay. He's responding well at the moment to it. So that's good. And Dave Lynn, what about your son? Um, gosh, you know, I can say having a 20 year old, some of this seems um, like so long ago, uh, you know, I, I, I can remember certainly all of all of our stressors. So my son was born large. Also, he was almost 10 pounds and I was a few weeks early. Um, and so it was very quick and very obvious. So we very quickly uh, went uh, and tried the disoxide. He didn't respond at all and was put on octreotide. Um, And it was very, very obvious that that was not enough either. You know, he just required so much IV sugar uh, that, uh, you know, we were told very quickly that pancreatectomy was going to be his best route as there really weren't any other treatment options at that point. So uh, he was only two weeks old uh, when he had his pancreatectomy in the U.S. And that was enough for us to be able to ultimately go home on octreotide. You know, I think for parents, we just accept things as they are. This was our only choices, right? We, we um, are told, you know, you have one of these two medicines. Hopefully one of them works. For us, my son had so many side effects from the octreotide. It just really upset his stomach. And I had a really hard time as a parent giving injections. And then, you know, first, you know, it it is quite miserable to give the injection. And then as a parent, you know, you're coming after your child with a needle, you know, this little baby. And I think the other part of it was that within a few minutes, he started having all his side effects. So I just felt like I, I was causing him mm. you know, discomfort. And we were fortunate that our, our endocrinologist was very open-minded. And I had been, at the time, a part of the email group with HI parents many, many moons ago, um, before there were advocacy organizations that do the great work that they do. And um, other parents were talking about using an insulin pump with the octreotide in it. And we were very quick uh, to, to move my son over to getting octreotide via that insulin pump. And, and that really helped for him, the, the side effects, and also not having to have so many jabs in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it just really, we were able, my mother-in-law was quite the seamstress and she sewed little pockets in the back of his onesies and um, that we would hide the the pump in and you know away so it so it just really was something that we kind of were able to normalize life with um, he did have a mickey button um stuff as as you had had asked um he had a, a mickey and and we used that overnight uh for him and uh, he got dextrose through the night until he was seven 
uh, to be able to sleep through the night. And, and then we worked really hard to make sure he was able to eat nor, you know, as normally as possible during the day. How do you think the children cope with all these various medications? And like you said, Dave, Lynn, you know, having to go at your son with an injection. I mean, that's that must be really terrifying and frightening. I, I, I can't. I can't even contemplate what that must be like for a parent to do um, because I've not had to do it with my child, but also really how terrifying it must be for that for the child as well um, to know that that their parents having to do that to them. I, you know, I would be curious, Leanne, as your child's gotten older, what your experience has been for Hayden. He hated the insertion of the the insulin pump where we, you know, had to do that, the cannula that goes under the skin. Mm. Um, and it was Imla cream. There was um, ice cream afterwards. There was all of, you know, all of these things that, you know, we talked about where, you know, we as parents are sorry. We don't, we wish you didn't have this, but we also don't want you you know, to get sick when there's something we can do to, to help you not be sick. Uh, you know, just a lot of, I think, rationalizing and, and empathy and, you know, just in general bribing, I mean, all things, anything that it took, um, you know, and, and that had to be replaced at least every seven days. So still it was better, I think, than, than doing the multiple daily injections, but, but still, uh, you know, my son, even today remembers that and it does not have fond memories of, no. of what he, he had to go through. And what about the teenage years as well, when they're more defiant? And <laughs> how did that go down? <laughs> well, for us, we were quite, quite fortunate. And it's a little bit of a funny story. So my HI son is the middle of three boys. So my oldest had uh, a sporting event and we were leaving, we were going to the sporting event, and then we were going to visit my family, which lived about an hour and a half away. Um, and we had packed everything. Uh, at that time, my son was about nine, and we packed everything. And you all know you pack a, a special thing just for your HI child. <laughs> um, you know, everything has, you know, snacks and medicines and possible medicines and extras of everything. Everything was packed. Um, we got to the sporting event um, and uh, was taking him out of his car seat and I couldn't find his pump. I was like, where's your pump? He goes, I took it off. It was bothering me. And I mean, that moment of, you know, we've just driven this distance. We have all these plans for the whole weekend. And, and we had seen that maybe he was needing less and less of the medicine at that time. So we checked his sugar every, started every 30 minutes, every hour, you know, we would just go. And sure enough, he, that was the day that he came off of octreotide. And we would have never known it had he not just gone, ah, it was bothering me. And he left it at the house. He unhooked himself and left it at the house. <laughs> See the insulin pump? Is it like an infusion set that's in his leg, and he's just so, taken so, off? Right. So yeah. So he left the infusion site in, 
Um, and he unclipped the infusion set uh-huh. from the pump. So the infusion site was still there, but the, the tubing that went from it into the pump, he took off intentionally and left it home because it bothered him. Oh <laughs> so let's just say when you ask about defiant teenagers, my <laughs> nine-year-old had this you know, nine-year-old thought and therefore decided he didn't need it anymore and somehow willed his body to, to truly no longer need this. And so thankfully we did not deal with it as a defiant teenager because he was able to come off at nine. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. (laughs) Of course he's on dazzy-glucagon, he's on an insulin pump. I know exactly what, what you went through like about the changing, the process that you have to go through about changing, them, but just the idea of him just pulling it off. <gasps> oh, Leanne, what about your uh, mini mischief? <laughs> She's not too bad. Her problem is that she likes to take control. So at nine years old, she will do an injection herself it's all about the control it's always been about control because it's I think for her we started to mentally deal with it better not cope with the blood sugar better but mentally deal with it better because she wasn't dealing with it very well it was always why me why nobody else why not my big sister why not my little brother but the mental side of it she dealt better when she could take back control so she would decide like what she was having for lunch or she would decide that she was doing her finger prick or she would decide that she was reading the number of the Dexcom or then she was doing the injection so it's all about control because there's so many things that are out of her control I think that this was her idea of taking some of it back now now sometimes it is a massive fight because when she doesn't want to do something she isn't going to do it so when she doesn't want to be on a pump or she doesn't want her injection or she doesn't want to check that the Dexcom reading on her finger is reading right or wrong or she was hypo so she doesn't want to check it again after five minutes it's like fighting a grizzly bear it's sometimes it's awful but you just have to try and keep you calm because sometimes it's a little bit testing and I can understand why and with the so with injecting I never I find it really strange I never ever ever had an issue with injecting the mirror I remember the HI nurse coming in with a piece of what looked like orange peel pretend skin and said do you want to try it on here first and I said nope I'll just go straight for the leg and I did it straight away we took her off as soon as we could get her off the infusion so she was still in the hospital two months afterwards but as soon as we could get another line out of the leg I wanted to do every single injection so we didn't practice I just went straight for the leg and just did it and then had no problem but then when it comes to injecting myself I then thought oh I'll be fine with this because as you know Michelle I needed to do some injections and I couldn't do it very well I didn't have that I don't know where that came from with my child I just did it straight away there was no hesitation but for me yeah I would be like my hands around and all sorts and I did it eventually but it wasn't I don't know where it came from it was really strange the, the adrenaline just to kind of wreck yeah I, I want her out of here let's let's do this yeah, that, but I just thought no I'm not practicing I'll just do it and yeah. I did it that's yeah. all fine what about Dave Lynn you spoke about the side effects of octreotide 
And how did your son cope with that side of things? You know, we I think we were able to to temper the side effects a bit by switching from injections to the medicine by pump. Right. Um, and I know that that's not particularly commonly done, but for us, that was a real game changer. As he got older, he still struggled with some of the, the tummy side effects of things. So we, we watched diet. We took medicine or we, I say we, we didn't, he did. Uh, we gave him medicine, you know, to, you know, to help with that. And, and it just was, you know, it, for us, it, it just was this kind of normal thing that we created. This is the condition you have. This is the, what you take to, you know, to treat it. This means that you can play with your friends. And, you know, we really tried so many things to keep life as normal as what his brothers were experiencing so he played sport he you know he he went to school he just had to you know before he went to play we we call it recess um you know before he he went to recess or before he went to lunch he just had to stop at the nurse's office first so it was all something you know side effect wise as well you know these are the medicines if you're having these symptoms but we can't stop you know, this medicine, because this is what helps you kind of be okay. Yeah. I just got a question about um, how your son managed with an insulin pump. Did he get to go swimming or was he able to take his off for a certain period of time? When he was really little, he did not get to take it off very much. Uh, but that was where my having my mother-in-law was, she was just a seam, the best seamstress, and she made us all kinds of garments with pockets in them. So we were able just to put them in his garment. So he he did not swim without a swim shirt on until he was probably 10. He always wore a swim shirt. The swim shirt had the pump in it. Occasionally, if, you know, we would always check his sugar before he got into the pool. Uh, and if his sugar was um, you know, and I have to convert this, but probably five or six, I, we would let him go ahead or higher because it would be higher. As Leanne mentioned, when you're on octreotide, you can see some real doozies of, of blood sugars. Um, and so if it was higher and we knew we had a little time, we would take him off of everything and just let him swim. Um, but you know, what, you know, 30 minutes later back out eating fruit or snack checking sugar again and deciding how much longer he could swim without his, his pump on. So, but for the most part, it was always just tucked away in a, um, in a little pocket in his, in a shirt. Our insulin pump can't get wet. So uh, our son has never been swimming and he's two and a half and we're dying to take him swimming. (laughs) But um, if I take it off the pump, um, he has a hypo after 15 minutes. Mm. so um so scary yes but uh hopefully this uh, work with pouch helps so we'll see <laughs> we'll test it in the bath first <laughs> and leanne what about um for your child and obviously there's been such a wide variety of medications that she's tried what have the side effects of all of them been like for her and how has she coped with them the only one we suffered side effects with was the sirolimus 
Um, and that was straight away, that's gone. That's never coming back. And I know it's not widely used anyway now. Because yeah. that one put her in intensive care because she couldn't, she had rotavirus and neurovirus. And she just couldn't fight off the infections. So she then was in intensive care. So that stopped straight away. But side effect wise, other than the fine line between the dosage of octreotide, she didn't really touch wood, suffer any side effects other than the fact that they just didn't work. In fact, no, she, the lamreotide, she had an allergic to allergic reaction to lamreotide and I remember we went to Disneyland Paris and she just started using it and she spent the whole of our holiday in the pushchair eating various amounts of candy floss and things like that and she was just covered head to toe in a rash Mm -hmm. and again that one stopped but other than that she didn't have any and still doesn't have any side effects that we know of she's had uh, gallstones as a tiny baby from the octreotide and she's been checked routinely since and she's not had any issues with it touch wood so yeah and does she just take everything in her stride Leanne if she's having a good day yes if having a bad no when she goes to school she's like a different child because she has a one-to-one so the one-to-one sees her as this like wonderful human being which she is (laughs) but it's all this pent-up anxiety then when she comes home and then sometimes she doesn't deal with it and she can sometimes be quite an explosive child we should put it so there are occasions where you just have to let her do whatever she needs to do to get out this frustration because obviously I don't know i actually experienced a couple of hypos after I'd had the surrogate baby and I wasn't eating enough but I was expressing too much oh. and I felt well, I couldn't feel my legs walking down the stairs and I said to my husband can you check my blood sugar or something's not right and he checked it and it was 2.6 and I for hours afterwards I'd eaten and obviously I came up fine and then I was fine again it happened once after that and it, I just knew that it's just I was expressing more than I was actually putting in yeah and I thought how does she cope with this when she can actually have multiple hypos a day but she just must be so used to it that we've recorded her before running around and her blood sugar was 2.1 we'd obviously checked her and given a hypo treatment and she's running around like a wild child and I couldn't feel my legs walking down the stairs and I was 2.6 and I think I think that's the interesting thing isn't it that how the body reacts is different for everyone so like my child I've had her running around the garden on a 1.9 before a bit like yeah. and yet I can see massive behavior changes when she's in the low falls yeah like what's going on here <laughs> it's like, it is really really bizarre really bizarre how it can affect everyone um, my, my son's asymptomatic, so I've never experienced, well, touch wood, I've never experienced, like, the, all the all the symptoms that um, you hear about, what yeah. is leading to a hypo. I've never experienced that because, well, is he symptomatic? So. But that, like, changes, he gets older as well. Um, I don't say that, Michelle. You don't say that. <laughs> you don't say that. <laughs> 
I'm, co- I'm coming after said, you if it happens. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We always said, you know, like this is the phase that we're in today. I, yeah. I, I, you know, especially I can I can honestly say, Steph, you will go through many, 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 many phases of of HI yeah. <laughs> as you move forward. Um, you know, at 20, um, I still think, well, what phase are we in today? But um, <laughs> So, I mean, this is going to now lead on to um, really what do you do when, um, I mean, particularly in Leanne's case, you've exhausted all options possible. So the next thing for you is surgery, I'm guessing, or perhaps if there's perhaps another drug coming out, a clinical trial, maybe. I mean, how does that make you feel, Leanne? Um, well, we spoke to our consultant about the clinical trial. We've made steps with regards to the clinical trial. And obviously there's things that have to happen beforehand and you need to be screened and things like that. But we got to a point where it was, we had to say, no one really wanted to remove the pancreas because it's all she's ever known it's not fantastic a fasting time for an hour and a half to two hours is not fantastic but it's all she's ever known so we got to the stage because there was we were changing everything cereal snacks her lunch everything her whole diet change the amount of times that we changed the timing of her injections changed so it would change everything at school and we got to the stage where we said right now we're not gonna go go for a pancreatectomy and right now we leave her alone because right now our only option was she now also carries around bottles of SOS so that so we aren't constantly feeding her school know where because we have the Dexcom as well at the minute Amelia's got that for two years we're hoping it will get extended further but because we can see the trends we know when to now give her an emergency bolus so that we aren't because the problem was she wasn't being able to do what children were being able to do she couldn't go out and play and she couldn't you know I said earlier she couldn't get for a PE lesson but now sometimes it needs a bit more interference than just an emergency bolus because she's already got to that point of a hyper because it's happened so quick but majority of the time we just give her the glucose bolus through the peg, give her a quick flush and she carries on doing whatever she was doing. So we stop that drop and then it steadies off and then it might not be long before she needs another one or it's then lunchtime. It's just a lot of intervene. We intervene quite a lot now to try and stop the hypo. So sometimes her trend on her Dexcom looks as if she's had a fantastic day, but what the Dexcom doesn't say Mm -hmm. is what you've done during that day to try and keep her stable. Because as soon as she's below 4.5, it's not a hyper, but that's not a great number for her to be on because in five minutes time, she could be 2.7. She can drop that quickly depending on what she's doing. But but now we have the emergency SOS bottles and we just intervene where we think. So obviously we know her. We know generally, obviously she can throw a curveball and she can hyper very quickly. Mm-hmm. But it's now just you're constantly intervening because we'd got to the point where she was so unstable. She wasn't at school and she was on her pump 24 seven. And we did talk about doing octreotide through the insulin pump, but here it's a change of use. And it's not as easy to say, 
let's give her an insulin pump and they didn't have one readily available and hadn't put in the paperwork for a change of use and they were also concerned that it might hinder her progress with already taking things away from her with then having this insulin pump that she had to worry about and mm-hmm. stop her from certain things like the swimming so we're just we're still at where where we're at so we don't ring them constantly anymore mm-hmm. crying we don't know what to do with her because now we use her peg for emergency glucose bonuses yeah but we would we would we always hope for something better we've always hoped for something better and I think that's important because obviously with hyperinsulinism there is no cure go down the surgery route it's either a full or partial pancreatectomy but actually more than anything the HI consultants don't really want to go down that route because obviously that can then impact the children later on and in turn they become in turn they will then need insulin Um, so which is another lifelong condition that they would have to deal with and I think this is where the importance of new drugs come into play Um, and so we're going to be speaking with Davelin about this really about clinical trials and the importance of clinical trials. So, Davelyn, are you ready? <laughs> Absolutely. I had mentioned this a little earlier and I saw a few head nods and as we were talking of, you know, what we are willing to accept as parents, you know, whatever it takes we'll do for our children and for you know for so many years that's meant we have just these limited drug options that have side effects or don't always work for patients and you know what do you do for a, a child like Leanne's where the you know life is so impacted by this condition and so as an advocate you know I think I've learned over the past few years just what it takes for parents to say we we appreciate what the clinicians are doing I I think it's really hard when you have the wonderful clinicians and consultants that we have that take care of our HI patients, but saying this still isn't good enough. You're wonderful. Thank you so much for the wonderful care you give my child, but what is being offered isn't good enough. And we're going to fight as parents to, you know, convince drug companies to, to give us something better. And I think hyperinsulinism is in a good place right now. There are several drug companies looking at therapies. This is where I, I wind up, am I a parent? Am I an advocate? Or am I, uh, you know, a, a person who now works for a, a drug company that is developing? So it's, I will in conversation bounce between very different roles in all of that. But as I began to, to really work as an advocate with these various drug companies, I was really taken to heart how much everybody in the HI community has to contribute, the clinicians, the families, and the drug companies to, to really bring a new treatment, you know, to patients. And so, you know, that, that is a role that I decided I have a lot of advocacy experience. I know families around the world at this point in, in my life of HI for 20 plus years that I've decided to make that professional step 
and move to a company and really help them bring it to market, hopefully as quickly as, you know, the regulatory agencies will allow that to happen. Yeah. So for for families or anyone else who's listening, Dave Lynn, can you explain what a clinical trial is if they don't, people don't already know? Just in layman's terms. Yes, yes. No, right, you're right. So in, in very in very straightforward terms. So a lot happens. A drug can take 10, 20 years to come to, to be fully developed and, and be released to treat patients via by our consultants. So you know what first happens is they they usually look in labs to find um, different types of, of chemicals or uh, and I use chemicals just as a very lay term, but there's different molecules and products and, and things that, that can be tried. And if they seem to work in a lab setting, so maybe they take pancreas cells and, and look in the Petri dish and add these various chemicals or products. And, and if they seem to work, those are brought into development where they're tested in healthy volunteers first to make sure that it's safe for um, a healthy person to take, those are usually called phase one Mm -hmm. clinical studies. Phase two clinical studies begin to look at that same product that's been shown to be safe in the condition it's meant to treat. So now you're really going to take uh, a condition, in our case, hyperinsulinism, and treating patients with hyperinsulinism with this therapy. And that is, phase two is often sometimes called the dose-binding studies where they're looking for various doses to get the best effect. And then once you get through that, and again, every step of the way, you're talking with the regulatory bodies, you know, to to tell them what you're doing and get their approval to move to the next phase of studies. But typically after the phase two, you move into the phase three, which is really where you believe you have the best dose and you are, are looking to treat as many patients as possible. Um, and for a rare disease, that's sometimes just still a handful, unlike in more common diseases, and I'll use an easy one like high blood pressure, where you could go get a thousand people to enroll, you know, at any, at any clinical site, you know, in a, in a rare disease, you're still talking about just a handful of people, but you think you have the right dose and you want to show its effectiveness. And usually after a phase three study, you're able to get the regulatory agencies to approve the treatment to be used. And then it's about getting it into the market where doctors and consultants can prescribe it. Thank you, Dave. And usually sort of in the phase two area where they're looking at obviously trialing in patients, it's not just as straightforward as saying, oh, that that person's got the disease, we can trial it in that person. There's a lot of criteria involved as well, isn't there, um, to be able to be put onto a clinical trial? There, there can be. I think each drug that's being looked at currently is, is unique and therefore kind of well, each will have its own criteria. One of the challenges, particularly in rare disease clinical trials, is you only have 
a small number of patients that you can treat. And so you, you sometimes have to find the very sickest of those with that condition to show very quickly how beneficial a potential therapy is. And so for some drugs, it may be that you're just trying to replace something else on the market that's similar. And therefore, maybe you don't have as many criteria because you can show, uh, you know, a medicine is similar enough to something else that's out there that we could treat anyone with this condition. Whereas if you have something more, more new, there really isn't, you know, we call it first in class. There's not something else to compare it to. Then you really are very limited. You really need to show how beneficial that is very quickly. And when you don't have a large number of patients to choose from, you, you will typically pick those that have a very severe form of the condition to show how it, it improves that condition. And how do patients get to learn of clinical trials, Dave Lynn? Is it through their own consultants or do they generally find information online? I would tell you as long a list as you would, could make, I would say yes to all of those. I think it's so important. And I think, you know, again, the charity has been very gracious and, and even helping, you know, the company that I work for just bring that awareness to there. I think very, very straightforwardly, the consultants, particularly in a rare disease like HI and where you have specialty centers, where the UK is particularly blessed to have two centers of excellence for HI, you know, those consultants are very aware of what's happening you know, in the HI space for all of the potential therapies that are coming to market or coming through and being studied. There is, there are websites like clinicaltrials.gov. The the EMA has a similar European uh, registry for clinical trials. Um, Those are great places to go in. And when you go to those sites, you could put in hyperinsulinism and you will see everything that's being studied Um, about hyperinsulinism. The advocacy groups, I think, play their role as well because you're very informed about what's happening in the the HI space and and any rare disease, but in particular, since we're talking about HI. And and I think, you know, there's a amount of, of trust too that, you know, that parents have when they see it from multiple different places. My consultant said it, it's on this website that I trust my advocacy group is talking about it. And I think all of those together are a really powerful way to make sure that families who need to know about potential treatments are informed. Absolutely. And I think families also do need to do sort of their own research and ask lots and lots of different questions as well. Yeah, definitely. Because there's some, there, there's been times that a consultant's like completely forgot to actually mention to us. It's like, oh, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then goes in into more detail so it's like it's kind of a relief sometimes like that we mention it yeah um, because sometimes sort of living with HI it can feel um I think we've touched on this before it can be very isolating and sometimes you just get lost in your own little world and mm-hmm. sort of like Leanne said you know you're trying lots and lots of different medications if one in particular isn't working but you want to do your best to try and give your child a better life but as far as you know I think this is where families are armed a best place to be armed with um 
asking lots of questions and doing their own research. But I think also with any clinical trial, they sort of should have as much information as possible. Absolutely. I, I think it's really important. And, and you know, if um, since I, I know other HI parents will be listening to this, that would also be my encouragement for someone who's been on both sides of being a parent with a kid with this condition, being an advocate now, you know, being employed by a drug company um, that's doing this work. Absolutely. Ask the questions. No question is right or wrong. Everything is about you understanding how a particular new treatment might work. What are the potential side effects that they've seen in past studies? What happens if I get into this study and, and then we decide we aren't very comfortable with it? Absolutely. You know, I think it's important to know that when it comes to a clinical trial, the patient and the families are in the driver's seat. You will not, you know, your consultant will continue to provide the very best of care to you, whether you participate in the study or don't, you know, this is all about hopefully finding a good fit for you and your family, how the trial is designed. Some, you know, some trials like ours do require, because it is a first in class treatment that you spend the night in the hospital when you are receiving the dose. Some may not require that. Um, you know, so I think it's all just asking those questions, finding what's comfortable and, um, and knowing that at every single point in the clinical study, um, you and your child are, are in that driver's seat to be able to make a decision um, to continue or not. Also, um, during a clinical trial, need, the parents also need to be aware that what happens at the end of the trial, if but if the trial just have gets extended and extended, what happens then after that? Because there is a possibility that the medication may not even get picked up. So, mm-hmm. so uh, the only reason I'm saying this is because that's something we had to consider when we were signing up for the clinical trial that we're on just now, and that mm-hmm. that's still in the forefront of our minds. Like what happens? What happens? So it's it's just a a lot of unanswered questions until we get to the end result. Yeah, no, I think that that's a really important one. You know, so many, so many non-rare disease clinical studies don't ever need to really think about, well, we just need a few people with this condition and then they'll participate in this week's or months long study and then they'll move on. When you're dealing with very serious conditions and especially, you know, rare conditions, you need to know, will I be able to continue on this treatment if I find benefit, you know, for my child? Um, Because you don't want to just find something that works for a few weeks or a few months, and then then the study's over. And now what do you do? Because it could be years before the regulatory agencies approve it and it it comes to market. So that's a really good point. I think there's lots of information out there. And I think certainly, Davelin, with the Resolute trial as well, um, obviously the Children's Hyperinsulinism Charity and um, Chai International are all sort of signposting to that on their social media and their websites as well, which we will continue to do. So everyone can sort of get a bit more information from there and obviously on the Resolute website as well. Um, Absolutely. 
So thank you so much, Dave Lynn and Leanne, for sharing your experiences and talking about clinical trials as well. We've loved having you. And also thank you to everyone for listening in to our podcast. If you wish to comment on this episode, please do so via our email, hypohugs at hyperinsulinism.co.uk or on the Children's Hyperinsulinism Charity Facebook page and we can get right back to you. We'd also like to uh, give a quick shout out to Will Conway who created our new jingle at the start of our episodes. Thanks very much for that. We love it. We at Hypohogs also want to take this opportunity to wish all our listeners a very Merry Christmas and a safe New Year. Have a good one, guys.